Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Ellsworth, welcoming you to Prairie Doc Radio. This is a program of the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Rick and Joni Holm. We are here to answer your medical questions, so give us a call at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. Our guest today is Dr. Sarah Marroquin. Dr. Marroquin's specialty is general surgery, and she is practicing at the Brookings Health System. Good morning, Dr. Marroquin. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being back. I was looking back. It looks like it was about a year ago you were on this program with us. Yes, right when I first started here. Brand new Mm -hmm. to uh, Brookings and all of that. So how's your first year been? The first year has been excellent. Yeah. Yes. Good. A lot of learning curves, but it's been really wonderful. And I feel like the community has really embraced me and and I'm gathering more and more patients, which is great. Yeah, excellent. Well, we're happy to have you. Thank in, you. In Brookings. So you are a general surgeon. So remind yes. all of us, what, what is a general surgeon? And what does that look like here in Brookings for you? Um, so general surgeons kind of do everything. Um, but the majority of what we do is uh, abdominal surgery. So gallbladders, hernias, we do breast surgery, colon surgery. Um, and then a large majority of my practice is colonoscopies and EGDs or upper endoscopies for both screening purposes and if you need treatment with those. Okay. All right. So that is that is a wide range of things yes. that you take care of. So if our listeners have any questions about any of those topics, today's a great day to call in with those questions at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. So Dr. Marquin, I am interested in learning more about the latest technologies we have available through surgical robotics. Could you tell us about that? Yes. So we actually do quite a lot of robotic surgery here in Brookings. Um, And when I talk to patients about what robotic surgery is, I first like to remind them that the robot is not doing the surgery. Uh, The surgeon is still doing the surgery, but it's another tool we can use in the operating room to provide a more safe and um, effective surgery. Um, So the robot is basically um, a laparoscopic tool, so small incisions to do a big surgery inside. Um, And the the key points of the robot that make it uh, beneficial for the surgeon is that it um, allows you better visualization and you get more, um, you're able to maneuver tissue more safely. Mm, Okay. Yeah. So it's really good for, um, we use it a lot for hernia repairs. Um, gallbladders, colon surgeries, most of the general surgery stuff, I guess I already mentioned. Um, It really um, helps the surgeon just be able to visualize better and be able to do more complex surgery through small incisions. So it sounds like the robot has a lot of functions. There must be cameras and visual stuff involved as well. You said you can move tissue out of the way a little bit. Yes. So if you think about laparoscopic surgery before the robot, it really was just 2D imaging with, um, you know, we call them sticks because there's no wrist maneuvers. But with the robot, you actually have like the the 360-degree wrist movement that you would do if you were doing open surgery. For example, like if you were suturing the abdominal wall, um, if you're doing it laparoscopically without the robot, you really only have like 
2D imaging with sticks to do that, which is really difficult. Okay. But with the robot, you have 3D imaging because their cameras are more advanced, and you have your wrist movement, so it feels natural like you're just sewing normally in wow. open surgery. Wow. Yeah. So you move your hands in the same way as if you were out, but the robot is moving inside exactly. to do the sewing for you. Yes. Wow. Yes. Okay. Um, so you, you control everything the robot does. And right. it is a little interesting because... Uh, you know, you think of a surgeon as being next to the patient in the operating room, but with the robot, you are on a separate council controlling the robot, which is not right next to the patient, sure. although it's in the same room. Sure. So it's a little different setup. Right. Yes. Right. Oh, wow. This is fascinating. Well, we are going to be talking more about this, but it's time for us to go to our first break. And so if our listeners have questions this morning that you would like to give us a call, please do so now at 605-692-1430 with any questions you would like us to address. And get your name entered into our summer monthly drawings for one of Dr. Holmes' books. Again, that number is 605-692-1430. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. Tobacco can lead to tobacco, nicotine dependence, and serious health problems. Quitting smoking has immediate as well as long-term benefits for you and your loved ones. Make the decision to be smoke-free. Stopping smoking is associated with many health benefits. If you smoke, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. That's 784-8669. Or call the Avera Medical Group Brookings for help to quit smoking today. 697-9500. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth, and Dr. Sarah Maraquin is here to answer our medical questions Dr. Maraquin is a general surgeon at Brookings Health System. Give us a call with your questions at 605-692-1430. And during these summer months, if you call in with a question, we'll add you to our monthly drawing for one of Dr. Holmes' books. So give us a call now at 605-692-1430. Before the break, Dr. Maraquin was telling us about the robotic surgeries and um, how helpful those are in uh, doing those procedures. And I'm interested in learning more about that. So you were telling us about the cam- like the, uh, the um, skills and abilities you have with this robot. So you were talking about the camera, mm-hmm. how you're able to visualize things. You were talking about how you've been able, you're able to stitch uh, using the yes. robot. Mm-hmm. What are some of these other functions that the robot helps you do? I think another really important function that I use a lot um, when I'm doing surgeries is it has an infrared capability with the camera, which means I can use um, like infrared dye injected into the patient, and it allows me to better visualize both the anatomy in regards to like gallbladder anatomy, um, but also lets me know if... um, if the tissue has good blood supply, which is really important for healing after surgery. Oh. Yeah, which is a new technology and is really only available when you have the robot. Okay. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So the robot has a lot of different a lot of technologies that yes. you don't have otherwise. So Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of these um, most common. Um, well, actually, let's first talk about those benefits that you have with doing a robotic surgery. 
um, beyond the function? Was what might the patient benefit from? I think from? some of the patient benefits is um, that you get small incisions. Okay. Um, so most of the time, patients feel that they have less pain after surgery. Um, which I think is one of the big things because if you have less pain, then you can go back to work sooner. You can function sooner. Usually you need um, either no narcotic pain medications or not very many pain medications, which is also important. Um, So I think that's the number one benefit. I think the second benefit is that, um, you know, it allows a surgeon to do a safer surgery on you, which is important Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are the big benefits. Less risk of infection with um, antibiotics? Or n- not really. Not really. They okay. haven't found that yet. So not, um, I think, you know, if you do it laparoscopic or open or robotic, most of the time the risk of infection and bleeding um, and that those kind of risks are pretty similar. Okay. It's mostly the post-operative, um, like how the patient feels afterwards. They usually feel better after laparoscopic or robotic surgery than if you were going to do an open surgery. Okay. Yeah. What are some instances where you still choose to do open surgery? Like oh, that's still the best option for that's you. That's a good question. So yes, there are times when robotic surgery is not the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, some uh, good examples are inguinal hernias. You know, a lot of times I do do inguinal hernias robotically. And what is that? Uh, uh, an inguinal hernia would be like a hernia in your groin, like okay. a bulge in your groin. Okay. Um, and those need fixed. Yeah. Um, so sometimes I do do them robotically, but there are times when doing them open, which is kind of the old school way, is actually a better approach, um, and you'll get a better result. Um, so uh, it's kind of depends on the patient and if they can handle anesthesia or not, because some of the open approaches you can do with less anesthesia, where with the robotic surgery, you always have to have general anesthesia. Oh. Um, so that is something you have to consider. And then other things are, um, you know, with a robotic approach, you're always doing an intra-abdominal approach, which means you're going inside the abdomen to fix whatever you're doing, where sometimes open approaches, such as with the hernia, uh, you don't have to go into the abdomen, um, which can be a benefit for some patients as well. So You mentioned the difference with anesthesia. Why is that? Um, so with the robotic surgery, it's always, um, you always have to have general anesthesia anesthesia because you're doing laparoscopic surgery so you fill the abdomen up with air okay um so you need the patient to be uh partially paralyzed um from medications right to do that to in order to fill them up with air um, okay so you have to be uh in general anesthesia to okay. to provide that medication for that gotcha yes okay so a common procedure is the gallbladder removal yes mm-hmm. so you most often choose to do that robotically? I do. Okay. Yep. I do essentially all of them robotically. Okay. And um, what are some reasons people need to have their gallbladder removed? The biggest reason is gallstones, okay. um, which is really common in America, um, and causing pain. And basically, it's kind of recurrent right upper quadrant pain, nausea, and vomiting. Um, and then if you have gallstones, we do recommend taking your gallbladder out. Um, other causes can be if you have what's called biliary dyskinesia, which means your gallbladder just doesn't function correctly, or if you get um, what's called cholelithiasis or pancreatitis, where one of those gallstones pops out and causes a problem to um, the bile tube that's draining from the liver or um, the pancreatic juices draining from the pancreas. So all of those would be reasons to take your gallbladder out. Do most people, is this usually something that happens and 
you show up to the emergency room or are um, sometimes gallbladder issues caught earlier and you can schedule these things? A lot of the times they're caught earlier where okay. it's like the patient has had, because usually it starts as just a few episodes that last for, you know, a half hour to an hour and then they go away. Um, and then once they kind of keep coming, we work up the gallbladder and we realize we should take it out because it's gallstone. So a lot of the times it actually, I see patients through clinic for this, but it can cause, you know, gallbladder and liver infections, which then I see the patients usually through the ED. Okay. Uh, but the gallbladder surgery is an outpatient surgery. So most of the time people come in and go home the same day. Oh, gotcha. And what is the recovery like usually, or what changes do people have to make after they've had their gallbladder removed? You know, I tell patients that really um, postoperatively, they don't need to have any dietary changes. Um, really, the only thing is, um, you know, I tell people to have a lifting restriction for two weeks after surgery, um, just because you do have incisions in your abdominal wall and you don't want them to become hernias. Um, and other than that, I really have no other restrictions. And most okay. people um, do great, like they're back to work like two to three days after surgery. Okay, excellent. All right, well, it's time for us to go to our next break. We thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio on KBRK and on our podcast. Call us now at 605-692-1430 with any medical questions you would like us to address and get your name entered into our summer monthly drawing for one of Dr. Holmes' books. That number is 605-692-1430. 1430. Prairie Doc programs are available as a podcast. Just look for Prairie Doc wherever you get your podcast. Today's program will be added to the podcast soon. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. Drinking and driving is a threat to everyone. Did you know that every day about 30 people in the United States die in a motor vehicle crash that has involved an alcohol-impaired driver? This amounts to one death every 51 minutes. Driving drunk is never okay. Choose not to drink and drive and help others to do the same. And remember to buckle your seatbelt every time you are in the car. The Avera Medical Group Brookings is concerned about your health and safety. Please call 697-9500 if you have health concerns. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth, and Dr. Sarah Marquin is here to answer our medical questions. Dr. Marquin is a general surgeon at Brookings Health System. You can give us a call with your questions at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. We've been talking this morning with Dr. Marquin about all different types of general surgery and the benefits of often doing those with the robotic technology that we have available now. Uh, Dr. Mark, when I wanted to talk about the colon, let's talk about colonoscopies in general, and then when there needs to be procedures, how um, how that works as well. Okay. Perfect. We do do a lot of colonoscopies, um, and most of them are for screening purposes. We, they um, just change the screening recommendation. So now it is recommended you get your screening colonoscopy starting at 45, or if you have a family member that has had colon or rectal cancer um, 10 years after their, uh, when they were diagnosed. So if they were diagnosed at 30, then you would need to do it at 40 or 45, whichever one is sooner. Okay. All right. So a change in that 
um, recommendation for when? Yes, it used to be 50, so now it's 45. Okay. All right. So a good thing to talk about with your primary care provider when you're going in to see what would be best for you and to get those things scheduled. Uh, We talk about colonoscopies frequently on here, but why don't... I think it's always good to have that encouragement. Why is it important for us to get those scheduled when it, when it is time? And um, what are you looking for? And what do you do when you're doing a colonoscopy? Um, so colonoscopies are very important for preventative health um, because if there are polyps in there, the majority of the polyps are precancer lesions that we can fully remove. And once they're removed, that's the treatment. So it's both diagnostic and a treatment at the same time. Um, so what I tell patients when I'm about to do a colonoscopy is that You know, the hard part is the bowel prep, Mm -hmm. um, which is the part where you have to drink the medicine to basically clean out your colon the day before. But once you get to the procedure, most people tolerate it very well and have a good experience. Um, You are sedated for the colonoscopy, so most people don't actually remember the procedure. Um, And what happens is basically the colonoscopy goes up your bottom all the way to where your colon meets your small intestines. And then I'm slowly looking back for anything abnormal. So usually it's polyps, but sometimes there can be inflammation or lesions or or anything abnormal. And then all polyps uh, get taken out. Um, The majority of them are small enough that we can take out and then that's the whole treatment. Sometimes there's very big polyps in there that are still precancer lesions that then we can take out and kind of piecemeal. So we take out part of them at the first colonoscopy, and then we take out the rest of it in three months. Um, but sometimes we then also find colon cancer. So that's the important part. And so when we do find the colon cancer, we take a lot of biopsies of it so that we know what it is. Um, and then all the tissue we take out gets sent to the pathologist. And then once we get that, we can kind of decide what to do. So your repeat colonoscopy is based on um, your family history of colon cancer and um, the type and size of polyps. And it just depends on how many and what size. But if you find a colon cancer mass, um, that's very important. The next steps for that are usually imaging, and then we decide uh, if we need to do surgery or not which is also where the robot can come in because sure. um, majority of colon cancer surgeries um, we do do robotically or laparoscopically with small incisions and people tolerate it really well. Okay. And if you catch cancer early, um, it is cured with just surgery a lot of the time okay. and you don't need any other type of treatment, which is really awesome for patients. Right. So a lot of times treatment is removing um, part of the colon if needed yes or if it's yes okay that's correct so usually the um the treatment is depending on where it is in the colon it's just cutting out that part of the colon and hooking it back together it's pretty low um likelihood that you actually even need to have any other treatment that or have um like a colostomy bag which would be like a bag in your abdomen. That's pretty low if you catch it early. Okay. So the majority of the time you just take it out with laparoscopic surgery, put it back together, and then that's their treatment. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, Yeah, so important reminder to make sure we're staying on top of those colonoscopies. If you're due for one, Yes. take care of that. So Please go get them. (laughs) Yes. Um, Much much easier and better results if we stay on top of those things. Yes. Very good. Uh, we had, I wanted to ask you about other gastrointestinal surgeries. Um, do you do surgeries on the stomach or other so parts there, of the intestine? Um, yes. Okay. So, um, you know, one big one would be the appendix. Okay. Um, yes. we take that out. That's part of the GI tract. The appendix is actually hooked up to your colon. 
Um, most of the time we do that laparoscopically, but you can do it robotically too, and that's a pretty quick procedure. Um, we also sometimes need to take out part of the small intestines um, for different reasons. Sometimes it's for bowel obstructions, which is usually caused by scar tissue, but sometimes it's for more rare tumors. Um, and a lot of times we also do that laparoscopically. Um, but then uh, with the robot, I think, although we don't do it as much here in Brookings, but more in Sioux Falls, um, you do do a lot of stomach surgeries now and what we call foregut surgeries, which is like the stomach and esophagus, mm. where prior to robotics, we were not really able to do it as well laparoscopically because it's a difficult location. But with the technology of the robot and the camera, it's made it a lot easier. Okay. Mm-hmm. The stomach and the esophagus. Um, so keeping that um, fluid down, is that what we're looking at with that? Uh, well, you know, they do kind of s- all sorts of types of okay. surgeries, um, depending on what they find. Sometimes it's for cancer. Sometimes it is for, like, acid reflux okay. reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, um, sometimes it can be for, uh, like, peptic ulcer disease or, like, bad ulcers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really depends. But it's a whole host of Got things it. that they could be doing it for. Okay. Well, we're going to go to our final break and give you an opportunity to call in with your questions. We thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio on KBRK and on our podcast. We're happy to have Dr. Sarah Mariquin here with us today. She's a general surgeon at Brookings Health System. If you have questions, give us a call at 605-692-1430. 605-692-1430. We will return following this informative message from the Avera Medical Group. Everyone should have smoke alarms and carbon monoxide detectors in their homes. Carbon monoxide is an odorless, colorless gas that can cause sudden illness and death. Take a few minutes to ensure your alarms are in good working order. Replace the battery at least once a year. This message is brought to you by the Avera Medical Group Brookings, 697-9500. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Laura Ellsworth, and Dr. Sarah Marquin is here to answer our medical questions. Dr. Marquin is a general surgeon at Brookings Health System. Give us a call with your questions at 605-692-1430. We had a question come in about certain foods to avoid when you have asthma or general activity to avoid an attack. Now, Dr. Marquin, I'm wondering, is asthma a bit out of your specialty? I will admit that I do not treat asthma for <laughs> ever. Okay. Well, yes. maybe we'll, we'll um, save this question for next week when we have one of our um, primary care docs here, and we'll talk about asthma next week. So, uh, listener, please be sure to tune in next week, and we will dive into that asthma question and um, foods and activities to help with that. But that I do love the idea of talking about food, Dr. Marquin, as you are going in and looking at people's intestines and all this digestive stuff. What recommendations do you have regarding food and diet and um, what do you see? Yeah, you know, diet in general, um, I think I probably the majority of my patients, I tell them that um, I recommend a high fiber diet. Um, So I recommend trying to get at least 20 grams of fiber a day into your diet, um, just for general health. Um, Also, I I see a lot of patients who have, you know, either constipation or diarrhea issues or just, you know, kind of general dyspepsia where they have difficulties digesting stuff. And when you look at all the data and, and, and look at the papers, that's 
the first thing we always recommend is high fiber. So I tell people um, the best way to figure out how much fiber they actually are eating in their diet is to do like a fiber journal. So for like a week, write down what you eat and how much fiber is in there. So you can get a general sense of how much fiber you're actually taking in. Um, And the American diet you'll see is it's pretty a low fiber diet. Mm -hmm. And so then I tell people once you figured out what your average is to supplement with either fiber you know, fiber pills, fiber gummies, any fiber supplement you'll you'll actually take mm-hmm. is is good. Okay. With a goal of twenty grams a day. Twenty grams a day. Yes. So what do you, what are some of your favorite foods you recommend? If you're if someone is just kind of going starting this, like I don't really know what foods have fiber. What do you recommend? So what are some of your recommendations if you're um, one of to the easiest rule of thumbs? I think is just you know fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. You know I I can't name off the top of my head you know exactly how much fiber they are, but it's pretty pretty good rule of thumb that fruits and vegetables are high in fiber. Mm-hmm. Um, I also recommend people try um, like a high fiber bread. Or just, if you just switch one thing in your diet to be a little more high fiber, like just your bread or just your breakfast cereal, one thing will make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I feed my kids fiber one granola bars because they have 10 grams of fiber. So that's half the fiber you need in one day in one granola bar. So just one small change, I tell people, is, is better than nothing and it does make a difference. Okay. And they make a lot of good tasting I mean, they do. Fr- yes. fruits and vegetables absolutely <laughs> taste great, but there's also some other options. Yeah, like you exactly. Said, the fiber like breads. Fiber and, breads, uh-huh. granola bars, cereals. Yeah, mm-hmm. the fiber one granola bars that are chocolate my five-year-olds eat. So right, those <laughs> are just like kind of good. Treat. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Perfect. Um, we had another question come in. Let's see. This is about carpal tunnel surgery. Uh, what is recovery time following carpal tunnel surgery? So... I don't do carpal tunnel surgery. Um, usually that's like an orthopedic surgeon or um, like a hand specialist. But I can tell you a little bit about it. Right. I do know it's an outpatient procedure. So that means you come in uh, and go home the same day. And the majority of the time you don't need any type of general anesthesia, um, which is kind of like what we were talking about before. So it's usually just a little bit of sedation and numbing medicine. Um, so from that standpoint, I think people recover pretty well. Um, there are likely restrictions, and I am not entirely sure what those are for how sure. long. Mm-hmm. And what is carpal tunnel? Um, so carpal tunnel is when the median nerve, which is running on your wrist, um, basically gets squished from the um, tendons that are in your wrist. So what they have to do is they have to cut those tendons in order to let that nerve have some room so that um, it fixes your symptoms, which is usually pain and numbness in your hand. Okay. All right. So um, sounds like it could be a a pretty quick recovery time. I think it is a pretty pretty quick recovery Mm -hmm. time and people tolerate it really well. And it's usually just a small, small incision on your wrist. Okay. All right. Well, we have just a couple minutes left, Dr. Maraquin. Is there anything else you feel is important to talk about with general surgery and um, any of the healing or anything like that with it? Um, I think I like to just remind everyone with general surgery, um, and if you're going to go through a surgery procedure, you know, the the best type of surgery is the one that your surgeon feels the most comfortable with. So if uh, and that they feel that you're going to do the best. So even mm-hmm. if you hear like, oh, well, my friend had a robotic surgery done. That's what I want. But your surgeon thinks you should have an open one. There's probably reasons why um, 
they recommend that. And if, if they feel the most comfortable with that, well, that's probably the best option. Um, so, you know, there's all sorts of ways to do surgery laparoscopically, robotically, or open. And it's really just depends on the the reason you're having the surgery and and the patient in terms of you know their size and their other comorbidities and sometimes even the medications they're on on why we pick those surgeries um, but if you have questions or you want to know if there's other ways to do it always ask always talk to your provider and ask them why are you doing this way tell them tell me your thought process because we would be happy to tell you about it and and have it be a joint decision in the end. Right, absolutely. Great advice. Yeah. Thank you for being here this morning. Yes, I learned you. a lot today. Thank you, Dr. Mark. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, we thank you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio. Before we go, please be sure to tune in to South Dakota Public Broadcasting Television and the Prairie Doc Facebook page for On Call with the Prairie Doc most Thursdays starting at 7 p.m. Central. This week, on Thursday, August 11th, we will be rebroadcasting the show on urogynecology. Prairie Doc host Jill Cruz is joined by Dr. Matthew Barker of Avera Medical Group Urogynecology and Dr. Lauren Woodtoom of Urology Specialist. They discuss pelvic floor dysfunction, treatments for urinary urgency and incontinence, and other issues unique to women of all ages. So tune in tomorrow night on SDPB television to learn more. We hope you've enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program and we'll listen again for Prairie Doc on KBRK, brought to you by the Avera Medical Group Brookings. Please follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube. For free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc library, visit www.prairiedoc.org. And look for Prairie Doc wherever you find your podcast. My thanks to Dr. Sarah Marquin for joining us today. And as Dr. Holm would say, stay healthy out there, people.